1: Find Reese's now at a store near you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
0: You go to the movies to escape reality, but what if it's just a matter of time before that sci-fi vision of our future becomes reality? In films such as Men in Black, technology exists to erase memories, but now real scientists have had success in doing just that. Also, don't be surprised if you see a package of Soylent at the market, despite Charlton Heston's warning. Science fiction, science fact, and why our brains are wired to accept what we see on the screen. It's big-picture science. 2,000 years ago, the Greeks didn't have science fiction. I mean, there was Homer, so there was fiction.
2: Sing, O muse, of the rage of Achilles, son of Peleus, that brought countless ills upon the Achaeans, many a brave
0: But the soul Greeks did didn't have
3: science out. fiction because things didn't change very quickly. And science fiction often portrays a future that differs wildly from the present, and so the genre wouldn't have made sense when the future wasn't going to be much different from the present.
0: Your life would be like your grandmother's life, so sales of sci-fi books in ancient Athens, or for that matter, ancient Rome,
1: were, shall we say, modest... Let's see, 201, An Appian Odyssey, read that, When Pulleys Collide, and that, Men in Black, Togas, Invasionists of the Corpus snatcherus oh hang it, just give me Cicero's latest senate speech.
0: But the Industrial Revolution changed all that by introducing rapid technological progress. A new literary form called science fiction arose. Your grandkids might have a life that would be very different from your own.
3: Hey, Doc, we better back up. We don't have enough roads to get up to 88. Roads? Well, we're going. We don't need roads. And science fiction is a guide for imagining how the choices we're making today might play out and shape the future. But most science fiction is not prognostication, as anyone who yearns for a flying car can tell you. But sometimes sci-fi film eerily seems to get it right. I'm Molly Bentley.
0: I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology, from where they've been to where they're going. And what if what separates science fiction from science fact is just one word, yet? It hasn't happened yet, because there are cases in which new technology seems to have jumped right off the screen. The precursors of cell phones famously appeared in Star Trek.
3: In the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, memories can be erased, and now scientists have reported success in doing just that. Discover the relationship between science fiction and reality, and, later in the show, why our brains are wired to believe what we see on the screen. Thank you. In the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, an estranged couple in distress after a painful breakup opt for a radical solution. They each use memory-erasing technology and have the memories of one another wiped out. Whether or not they're better off when they do this is for the audience to decide. In the lighter film, Men in Black,
0: undercover agents erase memories, not with a delicate inpatient procedure, but with a blast of a neuralizer that they point at whoever has witnessed just a little too much aliens-on-Earth action. Manipulating memory is a popular theme in science fiction. The consequences also play out in Total Recall, The Manchurian Candidate, and The
3: Noirish Dark City. And did I mention Total Recall? And now they may be playing out in real life. In the last couple of years, neuroscientists have been able to erase selective memories in mice. And now a team at MIT has succeeded in doing the opposite, planting artificial memories in the animal's Is the technology of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind leaping off the screen? Well, one of the scientists, Steve Ramirez, admits that a painful romantic breakup did encourage his research. But the technique can't be applied to humans, yet.
0: Steve, we've seen it in movies, whether it's hypnotism or maybe the neuralizer from Men in Black, the ability to manipulate our memories. Now, you've done that in the lab, but first, I've got to ask you, does it even make sense— to talk about a memory in the brain. I mean, is there one spot in my brain where the memory of, I don't know, my first day of college resides? Is it localized like that?
4: So I think it makes perfect sense because even though it doesn't feel like memory is something that you can pinpoint and touch in the brain, it is as physical as anything else. So it is realized in the brain. Uh, it's not located in any one spot in the brain. We think that the brain coordinates activity from areas left and right, up and down, high and low, uh, to give the rich representation of a memory, uh, to give it life, basically. We think it recruits many corners of the brain and isn't localized to just one particular area.
0: I've heard it said that the uh, brain is kind of holographic, which is to say, just as you've noted, that that memory might be spread all over the brain, so I couldn't go in with a knife, as it were, and remove a particular memory from my brain.
4: So you couldn't remove a particular Memory in one spot of the brain, but you could actually start getting rid of components of the memory. So, there are different brain areas, for example, that process parts of a memory very differently. So, you could imagine that you could get rid of, for example, the gut wrenching emotional feeling associated with a breakup, but you could still have the memory of the person that you broke up with and when it happened and how it happened. You could still have that part of it intact.
0: All right. Now, you and your colleagues there at MIT have identified uh, some memories in a mouse's brain and then devised a way to turn them on or off. Um, What kind of mouse memories were they and how did you know the mouse even had
4: that memory? It's a fantastic question. So we can't ask the mice, unfortunately, so we have to come up with some clever ways of indirectly measuring if the mouse is recalling a memory, for example. So we work with the simplest forms of memories in mice. So one example is a fear memory. You put an animal in a box and you give it a very mild, mild foot shock. It's it's basically like static electricity, right? It's just surprising. The next time you put the animal back in the box, it runs to a corner and just stays immobilized. Uh, we call that freezing, because it looks like it's freezing in place. So that's one of the indirect readouts that we have to be able to measure now whether or not the animal actually formed a memory. You know, is it freezing in an environment or in a box where something bad happened to it?
0: So you knew this memory was there because you created this memory for the mouse. You you gave him a little mild electric shock, right? But then you figured out a way for this little guy to forget
4: that. How did you do that? So we actually started off with the opposite, because other groups have been able to actually suppress or even erase very particular fear memories in mice. It's actually remarkable. This is the stuff of eternal sunshine that you hear over and over, and it's possible in mice, for example. We tried to ask the other side of the coin. Rather than erase a memory, we asked, could we go into the brain and activate a memory? Could we actually turn one on artificially? So we were able to find... First, the brain cells that we thought housed a part of a memory, and then we were able to trick those brain cells uh, specifically to respond to pulses of light. And then we could literally shoot laser, shoot light into the brain, activate those brain cells, which inadvertently now jump-started that memory, which gave us the first proof principle that we could go into the brain and actually artificially jump-start one particular memory.
0: Wow. Well, you've described that rather concisely, but that sounds really hard because that memory that the mouse had, I mean, it's not in one little gob of goo in that brain. It's all over the brain, so you've got to figure out where it is, and then you say, well, I'm just going to turn it on with a bit of light. I mean, you're illuminating the whole brain. How do you illuminate just the part that has the memory?
4: So this is where we got lucky, in my opinion, because like I mentioned before, memories are distributed throughout the brain, so we had to find—you know—you can think of it as the golden domino. We had to find the domino that, if we were to flick it over, it causes this chain reaction now of recollection of recalling that particular memory. So we started off by looking in one of the most important processing centers in the brain for memory, and then we were able to actually—we this required a little bit of brain surgery, where we had to uh, take these tiny optic fibers and then lower them gently to this area of the brain that we know is important for memory. And then we use that to shoot light into the brain. And then when we reactivate the brain cells in just that particular area, you can think of it as the domino falling over now uh, and causing this chain reaction of all the other dominoes falling over, which is basically analogous to recalling this particular memory. And I guess in retrospect, it's not that surprising because when you think about it, you don't have to re-experience an entire memory in order for you to actually mentally live through it. You could be walking down the street and you get a tiny whiff of cookie, for example, from a bakery, and that tiny little cue of the smell of a cookie randomly triggers now the memory of your 23rd birthday right, and the batch of cookies that your grandma made for you, and this rich representation is now brought back to life in your mind's eye, but it was just this tiny little cue in the form of a smell. So we think of that tiny little cue rather than it being the smell in our case. It's just the flickers of light that are turning on these specific brain cells.
0: So you found a switch to turn this memory on. Presumably you could also turn memories off.
4: Exactly. So the beauty of this is that we were truly standing on the shoulders of giants here for these particular experiments because Other researchers actually also discovered a switch that we can install in brain cells that rather than letting us turn those cells on with light, it just does the opposite. It lets us turn those brain cells off with light and thereby now begin to suppress or maybe even erase parts of the memory.
0: Well, that sounds very much like science fiction, i got to say. Uh, makes me think of the film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, in which memories of a failed relationship were erased, and I think that was a motivation for you to get into this line of work anyhow. Or, for me, <laughs> <laughs> that neuralizer in Men in Black. You know, there was a small device, they just held it up to somebody's face and it zapped a whole set of memories. I, that seems a bit scary. Could you really, even in principle, do something like that?
4: Yes and no. I think... In principle, we've already laid down the foundation in animal research that we can tinker with very specific memories by turning them on or off, or even changing the contents of memories. The huge caveat being that this is in mice and in rats, right? Mice and rats still aren't humans. So the question, I think, is not is it possible in humans? It's how do we do it in humans in an ethically responsible way? And ideally, in as non-invasive of a manner as possible. I think we're a few technological revolutions away from that happening in humans, but I'm also not one to ever put an artificial speed limit on scientific innovation. right? That's just a matter of creativity and technological prowess. All you have to do is think about bringing your iPhone back 2,000 years and trying to explain to a Roman what it means to have a GPS in your back pocket every song that you've ever heard in your back pocket, pictures of everything you've ever experienced in your back pocket, and so on. And you would probably get stoned to death for witchcraft, right? Like, it's something that you can't even imagine the kind of technology that you're carrying in just your back pocket 2,000 years ago. So ask, what about 2,000 years from now, right? In that case, we're the Romans. We're the ones that can't even imagine the stuff that we might be carrying around in our back pockets. Now, the question of whether or not uh... this is possible in humans right now no it's not especially using these techniques but again i think that it's something that one day will be possible and the question is how do we have the conversation now to give us the proper social infrastructure to be able to utilize these techniques in an ethically responsible way
0: well finally steve you know when you tell people about what you do for a living here it may sound somewhat Orwellian to them, I would think, that, uh, you know, that we could modify people's memories. I mean, our uh, rodents' memories at the moment, but eventually maybe people's memories. I mean, Bob Hope used to sing, thanks for the memories. And in a sense, those memories are what Bob Hope was and what we all are, really. I mean, isn't it true that if we start tampering with our memories, we're tampering with our identities?
4: Yeah, sure. I think that maybe every other generation reinvents how their identities are actually realized. And I mean, think about how much of your identity your iPhone, for example, has become. It's just an extra layer of stuff that we incorporate into our daily routines. Now, with regards to memory manipulation, my opinion on this is that it's probably best used in a clinical setting. So, for example, should memory manipulation ever reach the realm of humans? at the level that we're doing it with animals, then you wouldn't give it to Steve who can't get over a two-week breakup. You would give it to the war veteran who can't sleep and can't begin to integrate himself into a daily routine, for example. Or you give it to the person who's riddled with depression and symptoms of depression, and because of that now is no longer who they used to be. You give it to the person with schizophrenia, for example, who is having particular kinds of hallucinations and so on. So you give it to the clinically relevant population as a new tool now in our arsenal of combating some of these psychiatric illnesses. So I see these kinds of things being applied in humans for the sake of enabling our overall well-being is the, the only way I can think of right now that would use this kind of technology, not just in an ethically responsible way, but in a socially responsible way.
0: Steve Ramirez, thanks so very much for, well, a memorable
4: interview. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be here.
3: Steve Ramirez is a neuroscientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology.
0: Coming up, you are what you eat. Well, that's a theme played out to chilling effect in the thriller Soylent Green where what you ate might have been your ground-up neighbors.
3: Now the nutritional drink Soylent is on the market. We'll mix it, drink it, and talk to the company's CEO about his plans to make it a global food
0: next. Also, the perils of the genre of climate disaster films, or cli-fi, in which we trash earth and shop for a new home elsewhere.
3: It's science fiction true on Big Picture Science.
0: we're talking about science fiction films whose central premise seems to have played out
3: in real life. Hungry for more? In the film Soylent Green, the year is 2020. Overpopulation has stripped the planet of its natural resources, air and water are polluted, but people are able to eke out an existence with rations provided by the munificent Soylent Corporation, whose scientists have figured out how to turn high-energy plankton into a global food supply, all packed into a wafer called Soylent Green.
0: It's advertised to be nutritious, if not delicious, and better than red or yellow Soylent. At the end of the film, and this is a spoiler alert for anyone who has not chanced to see this 1973 flick, comes one of the most memorable lines uttered in all of sci-fi. Charlton Heston plays a detective who learns the awful truth about what the Soylent Corporation is really packing into its wafers.
4: You gotta tell him. Soylent Green
3: is people! Well, Soylent Green was quite a sci-fi ride, but maybe it's not over.
5: Hi, my name is Rob Reinhart. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Soylent. Soylent comes in a white pouch. Mix it with
0: water and a bit of oil, and you have a meal. And that's not all. It's made by
3: people! People!
0: Yes, people have made Soylent what it is. Well, not the way they literally made it what it was in the film... It's a nutritious drink, according to Rob Reinhart, that can help feed a world that can't feed itself, either due to depleted natural resources or lack of time or ability to scrape up a healthy meal. Rob, thank you for
3: coming to our studio.
0: My pleasure. You've got a bag there of Soylent. What's in that bag?
5: In this bag is the ideal staple meal. This food is designed from the ground up to give you everything your body needs in the precise quantities that it needs.
3: And so, it's not only designed from the ground up, it is ground up.
5: It is a powder, and you mix it with water, and you down it. What so, could be easier? So this this isn't just a meal. I mean, that's every meal, if you will. You could live on this, if you so desired.
3: Now, you say it's the ideal food. I mean, spaghetti carbonara, I think, is the ideal food. How does this compare to that?
5: Well, uh, I'm not sure what that is, actually. <laughs> I'm not much of a foodie. Uh, you know, food is several things to us. It is uh, primarily, I think, function. Um, If we didn't eat, we would die, and then you couldn't even enjoy your spaghetti. So um, first thing, uh, I think the most important constraint of food is that it is accessible, and it is functional, and it is practical.
3: And we should say we're going to try it here. So hang on, everyone. We'll
0: we'll give
5: you our review. But
0: but the (laughs) question I'd have is, you know, what was it that motivated you to do this? If I go to my local supermarket, I see aisle after aisle after aisle after aisle of foodstuffs. Mm -hmm. So what was it that made you think there's one that's missing that's essential?
5: because there were too many. There's t- the grocery stores are too big. They're too complicated. They're taking up too much space. It seems weird that we live in this city with skyscrapers of glass and steel, and we're picking these uh, the reproductive organs of plants from the countryside and carting them in on trucks and having laborers in poor working conditions pick them. All of our other technologies have increased by leaps and bounds over the past few years. Why are we stuck with the same
3: old foodstuffs? So we're going to make some soylent is that how you say it? We'll yeah. make some Soylent? We'll drink Soylent? Or we'll Let's drink- make some Soylent. Okay. We'll make some Soylent. What do we need to make it? What do you have in front of you there?
5: So in front of me is a pouch of Soylent with the oil bottle. So the oil is separated out. It's actually difficult to uh, powder unsaturated fat. You just add water. And I have a blender to make the mixing process faster.
3: How often do you drink Soylent? Every day. Once a day?
5: Um, two or three times a day. Mm-hmm. So it's my staple meal. You know, I, I use this, I always use it for breakfast. I usually use it for lunch. I often use it for dinner.
3: And what are you eating when you're not eating or drinking Soylent?
5: The rest of the time, uh,
0: pizza, burgers. It looks like, a, you know, a milkshake powder or something. It may just powder. Like sort of tan. tan
5: in color, it'll go with your walls. And mm-hmm. I'm pouring in a little oil. What's in that oil? Mostly canola He's oil. reaching for I the do. water. Mm-hmm. And then uh, algae oil for uh, omega-3 fatty acids.
3: Plants, plankton. plankton. All right. Well, well. Cheers, cheers to the yes, future. Yes, that's not
0: bad. No, it's not bad at all. It it, it is vaguely oh. reminiscent of some shakes I've had. I have to say.
3: Yeah, okay. it's a little grainy, but not only slightly, but it doesn't detract from the taste. That's How a, would you describe the the flavor, Seth? Maybe a malted, malted milkshake. Malted milk. Almost, malted milk yeah. a little bit.
0: But on the yeah. other hand, on the other hand, the number one ingredient in Soylent is. What is it, maltodextrin, maltodextrin?
5: Uh, Well, we get a lot from uh, oats, actually. So uh, we get oat powder. Uh, We do use maltodextrin. It's, you know, meant to sustain you for a number of hours. And protein comes from rice. You've mentioned, Rob, uh, both rice and oats. Of course, those are
0: agricultural products. And so the question arises, you know, what fraction of that one-pound bag there, before you put it in the water, which is good for a day if you made three meals out of it, Mm -hmm. uh, comes from, you know, the existing... If you will, agricultural infrastructure, you know, farming, ranching, that sort of thing, as opposed to what fraction is, if you will, manufactured?
5: Uh, Good question. I mean, I would argue that farming is a form of manufacturing. So, as with any manufacturing, we want to make it more efficient. We'd want uh, to have fewer byproducts. We'd want to have higher energy conversion. So, uh, one thing we do is avoid animal products. Also, I think this is a good time to state there's no soy. Uh, despite the name Soylent. uh, No ingredients Mm -hmm. come from soy. Uh, It is an allergen, so we can't use that. Rice is very hypoallergenic, but it does have to be grown uh, largely via traditional processes. So by mass, a lot of the food does come from traditional agriculture. But in terms of ingredients, a lot of the vitamins for example, are synthesized. It's much more efficient to just look at the chemical that you need and uh, synthesize it in an industrial setting than, say, grow an entire carrot and then extract beta-carotene. That's very wasteful. It makes much more sense to just synthesize the beta-carotene directly, and chemically, they're identical. So how would we do that is algae. Uh, we use microorganisms. We already use the omega-3s from algae because it's much more efficient to engineer these algae to synthesize uh, the omega-3 fatty acids than, say, extract them from fish. Uh, What we plan to do is uh, incorporate more and more algae-based protein, which we can grow orders of magnitude more efficiently than uh, traditional agriculture.
3: Well, Rob, on the subject of the name of your product, you say there's no soy in it. But Mm -hmm. it can't be a coincidence that your name, Soylent, is the same as the Charlton Heston movie, Soylent Green. And uh, that was a pretty grim assessment of what overpopulation and food shortage have driven us to do in order to feed the world. Why would you pick that name, Soylent? It seemed very relevant to
5: me. I was actually more inspired by the book uh, Make Room, Make Room by Harry Harrison. Uh, In the book, actually, there's no uh, human remains in Soylent. It's made of soya and lentil. It made sense when I was reading it that, you know, the the population on the earth is growing and there's only so much land. How are we going to make enough food to uh, provide for uh, an increasing population?
3: But I wonder, you talked about the reason why you drink Soylent. So that you can eat pizza and perhaps burgers and other things. I mean, to supplement your diet, and it sounds like your diet outside of soil, it might be a little questionable in, in terms of sure. whether or not it's healthy. I'm, I'm putting you on the spot a bit there, but let's say. But I'm wondering if this is really a substitute for meals for anyone outside of, say, your demographic. I mean, are you talking about actually feeding the world and the parts of the world where there are serious food shortages? And how would you do that?
5: Absolutely. It's a um, manufacturing and logistics problem to me. If we can produce enough calories, if we can distribute it far and wide enough, there's enough resources.
3: Who's going to distribute this? I mean, uh, right now, how you receive it is you receive it in the mail, right?
5: It's direct. Yes, it's e-commerce, which I think is much more efficient than retail. And then I think it is going to scale through using designer organisms, these uh, microbes, to produce the protein rather than the rice because there's not enough to go around
0: but but you so, haven't you know taken the approach that the people who are trying to produce for example synthetic meat have done where they want to make a product that is essentially indistinguishable from the kind of meat you buy today mm-hmm. at the supermarket you you've made a product that doesn't resemble any other food that i know about except you know powdered sugar or something right?
5: <laughs> yeah I, th- I think it's not the right path to try to recreate what exists naturally Um, I think we can take the technology we have and we can produce entirely new textures, entirely new flavors. I mean, there may be textures in the future which are reminiscent of meat, but why would we be held back by what occurs naturally? It seems very strange.
3: Well, then finally, what are you going to do that last bit of soylent there in the blender? Will that keep in the refrigerator?
5: Uh, It'll keep in the refrigerator for a few days. The powder itself, though, is very shelf-stable. It will last for years.
0: Well, Rob Reinhardt, thank you so very much for uh, joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
3: Rob Reinhardt is CEO and founder
0: of Soylent. Well, something that strikes me is the difference in the research that we've heard about here so far. For example, erasing, implanting memories, that's something that we see in science fiction quite a bit, and in a sense it's come to pass, at least in mice, but it's technically very challenging to take that kind of work and apply it to humans and to specific memories in humans. But Soylent, now that's another concept from science fiction, you know, we're going to manufacture some sort of universal food. Without the ominous ingredient, of course, in real life. (laughs) Without the secret sauce. Yeah, exactly. But to me, it seems that the hurdle there is not so much technical. I mean, they've, they've done it. It's not so hard to make it. It's getting it accepted because, you know, now you have to deal with all the social aspects of that.
3: Right. You're asking people to give up their traditional meals, meals such as spaghetti carbonara, one of my favorites, and you're asking them to do this all over the globe.
0: Yeah. Can hardly imagine a romantic dinner that would be well served by
3: you know, pouring powder into the glass and then drinking that. But, you know, Uma. right. It might be the end to romantic courtship. But in general, whether either of these ideas really pan out as they did in the science fiction film, we don't know yet. And if we don't want a repeat of the excess and wastefulness of the 20th century, then we need to teach our kids about this planet, not tales of leaving it.
0: There's a new science fiction genre in town. Its signature includes overpopulation, dying oceans, polluted air, rising temperatures, melting glaciers, runaway computer intelligence, whatever it takes to make this planet uninhabitable, climate fiction, or cli-fi, packs it up in a doomsday scenario for your viewing pleasure.
3: Now, the film Soylent Green had some of the apocalypse criteria, but with Cli-Fi, the premise is different. We don't make do on this planet, but abandon it for a new one. And that's a dangerous idea, says Jason Mark, editor of the Earth Island Journal. It's an example in which a science fiction scenario simply can't become reality.
0: In an op-ed for the New York Times, he wrote that films such as Interstellar and Elysium suggest that escape is an option when it isn't, and that we should keep in mind the placards held high at environmental demonstrations. There is no planet B.
1: The idea that we're going to somehow catapult ourselves out into the stars, and not just meaning one or two astronauts, but literally this is going to be a life raft for the human race. And I don't want to be a killjoy. I know movies are about fun and movies are about escape, At the same time, it strikes me that it's a little bit of a dangerous delusion, this idea that we're going to somehow find a way for human civilization to transcend this planet.
0: Okay, so uh, you object to this kind of an an escape hatch because it um, maybe lets us off the hook. I mean, maybe you could give an example of a film in which this occurs.
1: Well, the one that's in theaters right now is Interstellar by the really talented writer-director Christopher Nolan. And... Here's the setup on Interstellar. And warning, there are some spoilers coming. Some of your listeners might have caught this film because it's really been praised by its very careful, perhaps overly detailed dive into theoretical physics. Neil deGrasse Tyson has said he's a fan. It's gotten a lot of chatter online and, and in the Twitter sphere for this idea that we'll discover a wormhole in time and space that will allow us to zip to far distant galaxies. I mean, galaxies that are... You know, light years, or hundreds of light years, or thousands of light years away, and it's a really fun movie. I loved the theoretical physics of it. I loved the three-dimensional wormhole that they went into. I guess the concern again is the fantasy that it encourages. It encourages this fantasy that we're going to just have this Deus ex machina that's going to somehow come and save us. And I do feel that it's an escapist fantasy that is just too fantastical, and that the dangers that will distract us from the much more immediate urgency of stewarding this one and only planet, this third rock from the sun.
0: And I do recall a film of the last year or two, Elysium, in which all the better people got off planet Earth. What, What happened there?
1: It's unclear exactly what has happened to Earth, but it's clearly a sort of dusty, overcrowded place. I don't think you see a single tree or living green thing in any of the frames. And it's sort of this dystopic reality where most people are just scratching by. Meanwhile, somewhere in near-Earth orbit, uh, evidently in between the Earth and the Moon, there's this wonderful Arcadian space station called Elysium where the Swells get to live in comfort and with top-notch, in fact, almost sort of fantastical medical care that leaves them on the verge of immortality. It's a fable, right? It's a class allegory as much as it puts out a warning about environmental destruction. But again, the idea, which the filmmaker, to his credit, is clearly criticizing in a subtle way, is that there is no escape. We're all in this together at some level. Certainly, I think as we see more environmental dislocations the wealthy and affluent countries will have a better chance of sustaining and coping with the dislocations from global climate change and other environmental problems than, say, poor nations will. But at some level, we all are in this together. And and I think that's the point that Elysium makes to its credit.
0: The thrust of your op-ed piece in the New York Times was that these films may also have a kind of a dangerous edge to them, at least some of them. Maybe you could explain that.
1: Sure. I think the, the dangerous edge is, again, encouraging mostly among a pop culture audience this fantasy that there is a plan B or a planet B to which any appreciable number of us are going to be able to retreat. You know, in the history of humanity, and sure, it's only been a scant 50, 60 years, barely more than 500 people have slipped out of our atmosphere into outer space. There's 7 billion and counting people on the planet now. I agree that small space station colonies, a colony on Mars, these could be useful for research, for science, etc. But to suggest, even if it is in science fiction, that they provide any kind of life raft, I think it's dangerous. And I think it distracts us from the far more important work to be done here.
0: Well, Jason, is this a real problem or is this a, maybe just a putative problem? I mean, uh, are people really having their minds influenced by these films to the extent that they think, you know, I'm not going to worry about climate change because there's always plan B?
1: In the grand scheme of things, is this our biggest problem? These fantasies that Hollywood might be putting out? No, it's not. I mean, this is, and nor is this something I'm spending a great deal of my time and energy worrying about. But we should acknowledge that culture is powerful. There's a give and take there, right? You know, I think these eco-dystopias are a useful, convenient setup for film directors because they're believable. If you read the headlines, it's not much of a stretch imaginatively to think that we could be in the not too distant future in some real and serious trouble. I point that out by saying there's a push and pull, right, between audience and artist. But yes, at some level, this does among some viewers i think feed into a less than helpful escapist fantasy
0: but you wouldn't try and stop the production of such films i i take it oh
1: my god oh of course not (laughs) what would i go do on the weekend
0: yeah well there is that well let me just put it to you this way then jason i I agree with you we're not likely to get a very large number of people off this planet in the next 50 years maybe not the next hundred years but if you look beyond that We're going to run out of some very essential commodities, if you will, here on Earth, namely some elements like copper, zinc, whatever, uh, and platinum, that are essential to our gusto-grabbing lifestyle. So eventually, either we get off the planet or we resign ourselves to a very low-grade form of existence here. Don't you think that that's uh, eventually going to prove true?
1: I don't, actually. I think that the idea that we're going to go to Mars or the moon to mine essential elements and then bring them back here, It's kind of like a Rube Goldberg machine. It's employing six or seven complicated steps when one or two simpler steps would do. The most obvious ones, and this is a sociopolitical problem, and it's not something that science is going to crack anytime soon, but is first arresting and then decreasing human population numbers. You know, nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows what a sort of, quote unquote, sustainable human population is, but I would hazard to guess that it's below 7 billion people. So it's going to be more of an imperative than ever in the 21st and 22nd centuries to halt human population growth and then have a humane, conscientious, and thoughtful policies in order to then reduce human population, so that we do not run into those acute resource scarcities.
0: Well, bottom line then, Jason. I think everybody is well aware that Hollywood certainly doesn't always get it right when it comes to the facts. That's not the business they're in. But uh, I take it from what you're saying that this is one case where when they get it wrong, it, uh, it might have real consequences which are maybe not so salubrious.
1: I think that's right. And I think, again, the consequences are that it distracts our attention from thinking of the other solutions, the simpler solutions, the more elegant solutions for finding a way to balance human appetites against the needs of the other critters that are out there in the rest of the ecosystems. And in doing so, hopefully create for as many people as possible a wonderful lifestyle here on planet Earth.
0: Jason Mark, thanks so very much for talking with us today.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: Jason Mark is the editor of Earth Island Journal. Coming up, don't blink. Nope, wait, do blink. It's what helps us deal with the illusion created by film editing. Our brains may be wired to accept what we see on the
3: big screen. It's science fiction true from Big Picture Science.
1: Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything
2: podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet.
1: But it's not just
2: conspiracies, there's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway,
1: make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts.
0: Okay, well, maybe abandoning Earth in search of another home is an unrealistic premise, But then again, maybe that idea is no more outrageous than the fact that we accept what we see on the movie screen at all.
3: I mean, think of it. You're sitting in a darkened theater, removed from all that is familiar in your daily routine, and you're gazing upon images of people and aliens and cars five times bigger than real life, although we don't really know how big the aliens are, and they're running around shooting laser guns and maybe flying through the air, and you go along with it. Or what might be even weirder than all that, maybe even weirder
0: then the idea that memory manipulation in movies could really happen is that the sequence of what unfolds on the screen is one that just never happens in real life. Consider, you're looking at the moving image of waves crashing on a beach, and then suddenly you see a close-up of Kate Winslet's face. That's a jump cut in film and one that would never happen in real life, and yet we accept it without protest and just lose ourselves in the story.
3: Why this is, is odd. After all, homo sapiens have had their brains much longer than filmmakers have made attempts to entertain those brains, and yet our brains seem strangely well-prepared to handle the hardly real happenings on the screen. Cognitive neuroscientist Jeff Zacks at Washington University in St. Louis can explain. Flickr, Your Brain on Movies is the title of his book.
2: Our brains evolved not to go to the movies, certainly movies have only been around for about 100 years, not even to read literature or even understand our friends' stories. They evolved to deal with this complex, high-bandwidth, real-world environment. And it turns out that then if you're going to try and do things like understand stories or go to the movies, that it's adaptive to reuse a bunch of the engineering that evolved to deal with the real world. Then all you got to do is shut down those final output pathways that would get you to actually behave in a way that's not functional if the situation isn't interactive.
0: I kind of wonder, when I go to a movie, of course, I'm making a decision. This is, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go see this movie. And not only that, but I have a pretty good idea generally about what the movie's about, You know, what kind of story it is, and maybe even something about the, the, the plot or whatever. Uh, When I have a dream, those are usually unplanned. I wish I could plan my dreams, but I can't. So I sort of wonder, when I go to the movies, does my conscious brain kind of recalibrate things and say, okay, this is going to be two hours of fiction. Don't get too shook.
2: I think that's right. I think that parts of your brain kick in to say, this is fiction. We're going to override some of the normal processing that we would do to keep you from doing things like, you know, jumping up and punching back when that fist comes flying out of the screen. But if you look, you know, at little kids, they don't do that so well. I mean, there are other populations. And and even if you look at adults, if you look carefully in the theater, you know, when stuff looms up, people flinch. So we're not perfect at inhibiting this kind of stuff.
0: Let's take a specific example here. Many people will have seen the film Gravity in which uh, George Clooney and Sandra Bullock are are kind of being victimized in orbit. (laughs) They're astronauts, and they're having trouble. Now, you know, not too many of us have been astronauts, and yet we can totally get into this film. I mean, I found that I was in it, and here these guys are weightless, you know, zipping around the Earth every 90 minutes, and yet, you know, I could uh, feel what it was like with these guys. That that just strikes me as remarkable somehow.
2: Two of the things that are amazing about it are that you can get so much of the emotion of those character situations off of their faces through those helmets. And second that you can get such a feeling of vertigo and of being pushed around just from that visual stimulation. The filmmakers have said really interesting things about both of those. On the faces basically most of what you see in that movie other than the faces is CG. It's computer generated animation. But they were convinced that the faces couldn't be faked. And the second is they were convinced that they really had to get the physics of the movement of the bodies right.
0: Well, that's an interesting point because I do occasionally uh, serve as a science advisor to films, well, science fiction films. Normally they want to know, you know, what the aliens look like or why they're here or what kind of weapons they have. the kind of questions they ask me. But... My experience has been that I, I will redline the scripts or I will suggest uh, changes uh, saying that, you know, this, this violates physics or whatever. And, uh, you know, they'll listen sometimes. But in general, scientific, well, in general, in fact, always scientific accuracy takes a backseat to the storyline. But I don't think it matters because I, it seems that our brains are willing to accept it all. Or, or maybe we just consciously don't care.
2: So first of all, scientific theory taking a backseat to the storyline. Heck yeah, this is fiction. But I want to make an important distinction between theory and what it looks and feels like. So, you know, we we have to be pretty modest about our ability to reason out how the world works. And so in the context of a fast-moving drama, if somebody presents me with a logical inconsistency or a violation of facts that I know about the world, that might slide by. But if things bounce wrong, or fall wrong, or if you don't capture the physics of how things move very well, we're very good at detecting those kinds of violations under the right circumstances. And we have to be, because You know, in order to move around the world and not bump into stuff, we've got to be able to process that kind of information accurately with really high resolution and really robustly all the time.
0: Yeah. Well, that's something we're obviously very good at. We wouldn't be walking the planet if we weren't. You write that one of the reasons moviegoers confuse fact and fiction is that our brains are model-building machines. And I don't think you're referring to balsa wood airplanes. What do you mean by model-building machines in this context?
2: Yeah. So there's... An old idea in psychology and artificial intelligence that the way that you understand something is by translating it into basically a bunch of sentences or computer programs that describe the thing. And I think a much better way of thinking about how we understand is to say that you translate what you're experiencing into a set of models in your head. And so those models, they have some of the properties of pictures. They correspond part by part and element by element to the real world. But they also have some of the properties of models like Lego models, like that, you, there's confidentiality. You can take stuff apart and recombine it. And there's good reason to think that what it counts as understanding a situation that you're living or watching on the screen or reading a book about is to construct a model of that situation that captures the parts that are going to be relevant for predicting what's going to happen in the future and for reasoning about why things happened and for being able to communicate that to your friends and neighbors.
0: So you're taking this fictional story that's been deliberately constructed and it's totally artificial in front of you, and you're building that into a real-world event, a a real-world set of circumstances in your brain.
2: Yeah, using the same hardware and software that you'd use if you were actually in there in real life. And this is just a really valuable ability because... The bandwidth of the signal that we're confronted with every moment is just huge. The the amount of visual information, and then there's auditory and touch sensation and all the rest. It's just huge. And so we've got to do a bunch of abstraction. We've got to do a bunch of chunking. We've got to get it down to meaningful units of a size that are manageable in terms of the information processing capacities of our central nervous systems.
0: I'd like to address one specific of movie making, and that is cuts, you know, where you, you, you see some panorama of the desert, right? And you see some camels off in the distance, who knows why. And then suddenly you cut to a close-up of Omar Sharif squinting into the, into the sun. Now, that's the kind of experience that is very common in the movies, a jump cut, if you will. But that never happens in real life. I, I'm never standing on top of a mountain looking at something far away and then suddenly jump to, you know, five feet away from some guy's face. And yet we fully accept that. How can we accept something that's never, ever happened to any hominids?
2: Yeah, well, farther back than hominids. I mean, the crazy thing about movies is that in our whole evolutionary history, it's never the case that you're staring at something and it's replaced instantaneously across your whole visual field with something completely unrelated. And so, you know in 1900 plus minus, when that first occurred, Lumiere brothers first showed their audiences in Paris films. You know, Why didn't all their heads explode? And yeah, it's true that the visual world never changes discontinuously out from under us. But we blink about every couple seconds. We move our eyes in these rapid ballistic eye movements called saccades about three times a second. And during a blink, you're functionally blind for a third of a second. During a saccade, you're functionally blind for tens to hundreds of milliseconds. And so your brain evolved to deal with a situation where that's your normal visual experience. And on top of that, stuff does come in front of you and occlude your view. You may get distracted. You may move your head and your body. And so our visual systems did evolve an environment where they were getting patchy, interrupted, discontinuous input. And it turns out that good film editing hides in those cracks that the system had to build in to to deal with that discontinuity.
0: You know, that's very interesting that we really are kind of hardwired to be able to accept this kind of cutting. You know, it seems to have gotten faster and faster over the past couple of decades uh, when I was younger. And that, that's largely a technical thing, I think. It used to be that, you know, scenes would run long. I mean, you, you would never have a shot that was less than, I don't know, five or ten seconds. And now, you know, it's it's very rapid fire.
2: It, you're You're indeed right. Editing has gotten faster and faster. But one crazy thing is that it's happened twice. So in the days of silent films, shots started off long, 10, 20 seconds on average, and then went down and down and down to just a few seconds long. And then when sound came in, it reset. They got long again. And now, only recently, we come back on average to the same brevity of shot that we had in the 20s before sound became ubiquitous.
0: Well, Jeff, finally, I'm just kind of interested in whether... This experience that we have by going to the movie, something that we obviously crave, we, we like to do it, depends very much on the technology. I mean, if we make the films more realistic, Gravity, for example, shot in 70 millimeter in 3D, that means there are more pixels on the screen, right? And you get that 3D experience too. Does that, does that help? I mean, when I was a kid, there was Cinerama. And yeah. then, and, you know, three projectors running all the time. And and they would use it to, you know, take you on roller coasters or other kind of non-story experiences with the idea being that that would be good enough. Smell of vision. Yep. You know, all these things. Do they really help or does it really not matter?
2: I love the way a bunch of these technologies keep recurring. So what usually gets called 3D, which is really stereoscopic presentation presenting different images to the two eyes to give the illusion of depth. That came up for the first time super early in the 20s. And then integrating smell, there are all these techniques for vibrating the seats. You know, there's no doubt that all those technologies are really cool. Um, And one thing I've worried about is whether brain stimulation is going to get integrated into the cinema experience.
0: You suggest uh, maybe we could bypass the screens altogether and just uh, pipe movies into our brains and not have to pay $10 for a bag of popcorn?
2: So one of the fun thought experiments that I've played with is if we can shake the seats and add value to the entertainment experience, if we can pipe smells in, well, what about you know just jacking into the nervous system directly? This is a trope that comes up in a bunch of science fiction movies. But there are all these brain stimulation techniques that are online now and are being used for research. And you could think about the degree to which those might be honed in a way that would allow them to be integrated for entertainment. That's not going to happen next week or the year or next year. But I fundamentally think that entertainment and movies in particular are us messing with our brains and there's no reason we're not going to be doing that directly as part of the entertainment experience down the road.
0: Bad news for corn farmers. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff Zox, thanks so very much for uh, speaking with us.
2: Thank you. It's been a lot of fun.
3: Jeff Sox is a cognitive neuroscientist at Washington University in St. Louis and author of Flickr, Your Brain on Movies. Well, that gives us some idea of why movies have such lasting power, at least they do for me. Um, They do influence how you think of the future in your own life. They do, and
0: it's so amazing to me that we accept the techniques of filmmaking. I mean, I can understand that we accept it. Greek plays, there there are no jump cuts there, but movies we do accept. And the fact that we do suggests to me that maybe we also accept the content, no matter how far out it might be, we may take that as reality or at least a possible reality for our own futures.
3: Well, something else that is very real, that is the talent of our production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
0: Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, whose researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
3: Your ears have been attuned to science fiction true. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you may want to peruse our online archive. You can find it at bigpicturescience.org.
0: And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer to substitute it for over-the-air radio, because... You've learned of radio in some cheesy sci-fi film? Well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station's not on that list, consider letting them know you like this show. Oh, and if you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion, well, we'll read them all and get back to you. Just email it to bigpicturescience at SETI.org. This isn't real. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain.
4: Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
2: Lucky?